Hello and welcome to What Is My Podcast About? This is a podcast where we sit down once every two weeks and discuss a topic to find out what we want to talk about for our podcast. My name is Matthew, and as always, I am joined by Peter. Hello! And Keith. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, well, as I'm sure anyone listening can tell, we uh, still have never seen another one of us in some time now. Yep, still going yeah. crazy. I, I hate it. I hate it so much. Although, but also, I completely agree with the government, and we should continue to quarantine and not fucking riot and refuse to stay at home and block off hospitals and all the other bullshit going on in the world right now. Yeah, if you don't stay in your homes, you're not going to uh, come in contact with the 5G, so you're fine. Yeah. Survival of the fittest. <laughs> 5G can't get through your door. <laughs> going outdoors just puts you at greater risk of being corrupted by the 5G networks that the government's installing. Read a book, people. Or join your local Flat Earthers Society. Who knows? They might be onto something. Might be? <laughs> Don't tell me you're a round earther, Matt. Nah. I'm actually a cat earther myself. Ooh, cat earther. I, I like that one. Nah, disc. Disc on the back of the space tortoise. Uh, disc world. Yeah, that's that's how flat Earth works. It's a disc. Anyways, not necessarily. But anyway, yeah. What are we doing today, guys? I mean, mainly right now, I'm just watching the Resident Evil Three board game Kickstarter and watching all the fun stuff get released. And I've been playing a lot of uh, a new gotcha game, or quote unquote new gotcha game on my phone called Ark Knights. Very oh. addictive. Very addictive. I have a couple friends who have highly recommended I check out Ark Knights. I hate tower defense games. This is a tower defense game, but it is actually really fun. It's no fake Grand Order. It's no fake Grand Order, but uh, I have started to feel recently, especially with one of the last updates I played in fake Grand Order, that that game doesn't really, I guess, respect the time of players. Well, that's one of the main reasons I don't get into gacha games in general, just because of the fact that, like, I don't know, it always feels like a chore for something that you're not always yeah. benefiting from. Whereas, uh, I've found with uh, Ark Knights, anyway, it has the tower defense missions, and it also has a bunch of resource management aspects to it also. And when you're scored on mission completion, if you played it flawlessly without letting a single enemy get through, get three stars on it, then you get the option to auto-deploy. So you can just press to start that mission, and it just goes with whatever strategy and units you used at the time where you perfected that mission. Okay. Uh, I don't need to take this. I'm taking me and my historically accurate waifus home. Oh, what Peter I don't know if that it... If he ever chooses to start Ark Knights. I don't know that I would ever consider anything Fate Grand Order or any Fate series to be historically accurate waifus. I don't think... They're absolutely waifus. I don't think I would consider anything to do with the Fate series to be historically accurate. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have a degree in history? Nope. But I also just know a whole bunch of stuff that didn't happen that apparently did happen in the Fate series. Anyways, I don't want to talk about Fate Grand Order or any other Fate game right now. Please tell me that's not what we're doing. Yeah, we're not here to talk about gotcha games, either. I'm so confused. It's an interesting world that we currently live in, where nothing happens, but it feels like so much is happening. 
anyway. Or I guess the opposite is also true, where everything's happening and it feels like nothing's happening. Whatever. What are we talking about today, guys? Regardless, this situation gives us plenty of time to watch various shows like The Mandalorian, for instance. That's what May showers bring. April showers... May showers? April showers bring Mandalorians. That's just the whole sentence right there. Just weird because we're not getting more Mandalorian until October, but yeah, the Mandalorian, the Disney Plus show. But at the time of everyone reading this, it's May the fourth. May the fourth be with you, always. September. Until Revenge of the Fifth. Is all right. Okay. Um, I, I need to stop there for a second, Peter. Did you say September? Yeah, sorry, that's a joke I really enjoy, where there was an old YouTube video, I don't even remember what the video was, but they wanted to do, like, a Star Wars-based thing, so they released it on May the 4th, but recorded it in September, so two of the guys in the video make an intro where they're like, May the 4th be with you, and then the third guy's just like, it's September! It's one of my, like, favorite dumb jokes that I quote that I don't fully remember the entire source of. Anyways, oh, that, that... That sounds like my kind of joke. Dumb reference aside, let's move on. And talk about <laughs> Disney Plus's The Mandalorian. He's eating your garlic in the anyway. Yes, what were you guys' general thoughts on the whole thing? Did you guys I, enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. I think it was... Uh, I'm going to describe it as a breath of fresh air compared to a lot of more recent shows where this one was kind of presented in that old spaghetti western style. So it had a lot less of a compulsion where you felt like you had to watch every single episode and pick up on every key detail while the episodes did lead into each other. It also just felt a lot more kind of relaxed and they just kind of jumped around and you didn't need to super worry about the contents of the previous episode to understand the current one. Yeah, I think there's only what? two sets of two episodes through all eight that actually connect to each other directly because uh, the first two episodes the mandalorian and the child both run right into each other so it's kind of a one really big episode if you think about it and then the last yeah, and then planet, the last the two, exact episodes, two episodes yeah and then other than that it's just a whole bunch of jumping around between different stories within a kind of pre-contained world and sure if you jump around you might be a little confused as to the sequences of events but it's nothing too major. Yeah, episode three through uh, five, you can kind of just watch in... Oh, I guess up, no, up to episode six, you can kind of just watch in any order you really want. Six, I guess, kind of needs to be there for certain reasons, but uh, all the rest can kind of go in any order you really want. Yeah. I personally enjoyed it. It's probably what I enjoy... Right, uh, probably one of my most enjoyable new aspects of the entire Star Wars series... Well, yeah, it's my old, I guess, rating of best to worst in terms of movies is, uh, I have no idea what I was thinking when I was saying that, completely uh, not what I actually think, but uh, <laughs> Rogue One and this are definitely my favorite uh, Star Wars medias at the moment. Okay, just quick clarification. This is a TV series and not a movie, Just yeah, so but... we're all on the same page. Yes. Uh, now, uh, one thing I want to point out, uh, just with what you're saying there, Matt, is that does make a lot of sense when you think about it, too, because uh, out of all of the Star Wars things we've gotten, I think definitely Rogue One and The Mandalorian are probably, like, the freshest takes on the universe and not just more of what we've seen before. 
Yeah, because the Star Wars movies have a heavy focus on the Force, the Jedi's, and the Sith. Whereas Rogue One was just regular people. And The Mandalorian, a bunch of regular people, and, uh, well, the bounty hunter, Mando. Well, this is exactly what we were talking about during our episode where we just, our last episode where we talked about the Star Wars series as a whole. When we brought up the fact that, like, fuck the Skywalker story, no one cares about that anymore. Just set other stories in this kind of beautiful world you've created that have nothing to do with that, and it's still going to be fascinating, and it's going to be a breath of fresh air, and that's exactly what the show is. It doesn't, like, yes, there are relations to the greater Star Wars universe, and it connects in a whole bunch of different ways, but it just, it doesn't follow that same tired tale of good versus evil in the form of Jedi versus Sith. It just kind of tells its own story set in the same world. It's like, I remember a couple years ago now, uh, I can't remember the details behind it since the project itself was cancelled, but some game studio was in the process of making a video game based on uh, bounty hunters and, I guess, the criminal underside of Naboo, I think it was. But that whole project ended up getting scrapped. I think I know what you're talking about. It was made by the same studio that, or most people that handle the Uncharted games, I believe. It was like Star Wars... 1336 or something like that? Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah, it was on Coruscant, and it was, like, uh, one of the levels right. where they had, like, all of, like, the prisoners and stuff, and you played, I believe it was supposed to be, uh, Boba Fett, actually, or Jango Fett? Yes. One of the two. It was one of the two. But that was the most excited for anything Star Wars I was in a long time. And then I was, I was really upset when they actually canceled that, because I was looking forward to it. Oh, definitely. Like, there's a lot of really fun stuff you can do with the Star Wars universe uh, that I feel like... I don't hate the, like, Skywalker saga and, like, what it's trying to do, but it also makes it seem like Jedi are very prominent within this universe when, like, if you look at anything else, it's really not a common thing. Like, people out in the outskirts and that have no idea what a Jedi is. They just hear tales of someone moving stuff with their mind, which gets exemplified yeah. in, uh, I believe it's episode two of this one. Where he's yeah, got Baby Yoda. First time, yeah, episode, the end of episode one was where he got Baby Yoda, and episode two was where he saw Baby Yoda exercise this force power, and he had no idea what it was. Yeah, when he was fighting the uh, Mudhorn, I believe. Yeah. Well, we even get hints of that in the Skywalker saga of the fact that, like, Jedi aren't as big of a deal as the Skywalker saga likes to build them up to be. And our first introduction to... Han Solo, he doesn't even believe in Jedi, want to Jedi, because of the fact that, like, his entire world experience has none of this kind of nonsense of Force users or Jedi, and it's just him kind of being introduced to it through the Skywalker saga. And, like, that's a neat thing that they do in the Star Wars universe a couple of times, like, as we said, the Mandalorian discovering it through the child, but it's just one of those things where, like, it's two very different stories. One that's built around magic space wizards, and one that's set space wizards, but aren't as big of a deal as they're kind of making them out to be. And that was one of the few things that I did like in the uh, the prequel trilogy, um, more specifically Attack of the Clones, I think it was, where it made a very clear division between the regular people and the upper class politicians and the businessmen and what have you. 
and only the upper class had any dealings whatsoever with the Jedi. Except for like a few seedy contacts that the Jedi had for information. Man, I have no recollection of what you're talking about. I'm sure it's in there. I was about to say I now have to go back and rewatch the prequels so I can understand what you're talking about, but I really don't have to go back and rewatch the prequels. Uh, another thing I believe I mentioned too is, uh, I think it was on a previous episode, but uh, the Knights of the Republic game. There's a mission oh, so that good. I remember from it where it was on the uh, planet with the Jedi Temple, where one of the side quests, which is there is just someone was murdered and you have three suspects. You have to talk it out with them and try to figure out who killed the person. Yeah, I know exactly what quest you're talking about. That one was really cool because it's you're not playing as a Jedi solving problems because of your force powers. You're just like interrogating people and finding holes in their logic until you deduce what exactly happened in the kind of crime scene. Also, I believe that one ends with it was they all shot at him. Well, it's the two of them. One of them actually shot at the guy, and the other one tried to shoot at the guy, but the sun was in his eyes, so he shot the other suspect, uh, clipping him. So both are guilty of attempted murder. One of them's guilty of actual murder. Yeah, but that's the kind of fun thing. Like, there's so much you can do with the Star Wars IP, essentially. That having it just always be this big battle of good versus evil. Uh, kind of just feels a little bit worn out with the franchise, but going off into these side things, it there's definitely a lot more that can be uh, looked into. We got the Bounty Hunter Guild and some Mandalorian stuff, obviously, with this one. Uh, Rogue One was more of like a on-the-ground like military thing. Uh, I feel Honestly, I feel that the Han Solo origin story would have been better if they didn't so closely tie it to the Rebellion at the end. <laughs> Yeah, if it had have been its own kind of separate thing. Um, I just really, I don't know why this is something I want, but I really want to see, like, a private eye type story set in the Star Wars world, like, on Coruscant or some other, like, big city planet that's overpopulated. And it's just this one guy kind of solving crimes. And then over the course of the series, you kind of get a couple few sprinkled in hints towards maybe the Sith are behind a couple of the crimes you've seen. Or maybe even the Jedi are because of the weird shady shit that they do. But you just kind of... You don't focus on that part of the story. It's just a story of a guy solving crimes in the Jedi universe, but not built around the story of Jedi or anything like that. Well, that's exactly it. The Star Wars IP and universe is so big now that you can kind of throw whatever story you want into the world and it's going to work. For what you're describing, you could easily make an on Coruscant, like, a noir mystery. Yeah, exactly. Like, a noir story set on Coruscant. I think that'd be fantastic. And, again, it brings into uh, consideration what I've been enjoying so much about The Mandalorian. Is that its interactions between regular people, very much through the Star Wars movies, you forget that it's long, long ago... Because there's all this space technology, there's spaceships, there's barriers, shield generators, and all that nonsense. But then you come across just the regular common folk, and they're working farms, or harvesting crops, and taking care of wildlife. And very, very low-tech, with actual woven baskets and nets and things. Just... 
adds a whole level to, I guess, the depth of the world that can be explored and the gap between the different classes. I think at this point it probably makes a little bit of a sense for us to actually start talking about The Mandalorian a little bit Mm -hmm. more in depth rather than just what we want from the Star Wars saga. (laughs) Uh, Given that Lucasfilms is clearly listening to this podcast and we're really not even probably going to release this to the public. We're just going to send it to Disney for them to know how to make better Star Wars content in the future, but we might as well talk about The Mandalorian anyways, just in case we do happen to release it to the public. So, before we begin, there's one question that I want to ask you two about The Mandalorian. Okay. Is, I know, is, or it's when the series takes place, because I know it takes place after the collapse of the Empire. Yep. So, it takes place after the original trilogy? Because I am yeah. at... I yeah. think it's like three or four years after the original trilogy. Yeah, it's right uh, in the middle there between... Before uh, the newest trilogy, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so it's before even any uh, like proper government has taken up uh, within the universe. Okay, I believe... Makes, that makes sense. In canon, the years are kind of called the Chaos uh, Era, just because of the fact that like at this time, as what happens in these kind of universes... You remove the leading structure that controls the entire universe. There's a big power vacuum, and it's a whole bunch of different smaller clans vying for control, especially in the Oda worlds, which is where this series mostly takes place. And that was there's, even brought up a few times in the series. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple small, or not small groups, but there's in the center of the universe that it takes place, or center of the galaxy, like the New Republic has started to come in and is kind of taking up control, but I don't think they have main, or earned any like considerable amounts of control by the point in the story that we join in and start watching the story of the Mandalorian. Yeah, they pretty much have control of like the core worlds in the center, so stuff like Coruscant. And I believe uh, even uh, Carl Weathers' character, who is the guild leader, even mentions when he's uh, the Mandalorian's talking about how he's uh, very curious about what they're doing with the child, the remnants of the Empire that's in the town. He says, well, if you have a real problem with it, just go report them to uh, the core world and uh, they'll be gone in a few months. And the Mandalorian's like, yeah, that's a joke. Let's let's not fucking interact with them. Episode one? Episode one. Yeah, so named The Mandalorian. Uh, kind of gives us the, you know, introduction to the character and kind of that's how he works. It's a charming pub. Yeah, it's... Hunters. This one's less about plot and more about introducing not only to the world, for anyone who's not familiar with Star Wars, the but just like... The setting. Yeah, the whole story that you're kind of going to get to deal with it's a pilot essentially where you're learning about the characters without necessarily doing too much story progress and this is where we get the uh quirk of he doesn't like droids like 30 percent of everyone we meet in star wars yeah he's definitely on the racist side of star wars in that he just hates droids now to be fair though i think the mandalorian was the first time i've seen someone with that trope that when they paid it off I kind of understood why so many people in this universe hate droids, because I keep forgetting about the prequel, how uh, the big war that happened was droids versus clones, and the droids were kind of the bad guys. Oh yeah, there was that. Well yeah, those people hate droids, but that specifically show in flashbacks his home planet being fucking ravaged by droids, 
and him almost dying to them after they kill yeah. his parents. Yeah, an assault droid. Pretty much nearly watching said assault droid kill his parents. There was a door between them, but he knew what was happening. I do really enjoy the ways they pay off this kind of hatred of droids throughout the series. There's several different moments where it kind of comes to fruition and you get a big payoff for his hatred of droids, but I really enjoy the way they kind of handle it. Instead of it just being like a weird character quirk that's not really discussed, it's just used at one point in the series. It's like a recurring theme is his kind of hatred of droids and him kind of adjusting his uh, presumptions about droids based on that. Yeah, and I liked how at the end of the first episode his well, his viewpoint was, in a sense, justified. Well, also, not to, like, jump to the end of the story, we're gonna get there, but we get to see, like, the duality, where in the end of the first episode, he's kills a droid because he can't trust it, and by the end of the last episode, he completely trusts a droid with his own life. It's... He does a complete 180 on it, and it makes sense, and it's kind of built up over the course of the series why he has this trust that he's willing to trust this one specific droid. But, I mean, come on, that's IG-11 played by Taika Waititi. How could you not like him by the end of the series? Oh, it's like fantastic. I really enjoy, in fucking episode one, all his constant references to, well, my core directive, I can't be captured, so time for suicide! And he's like, like don't not, blow up. Not yet. We still have a plan, and if you blow up, you're gonna kill me too. I was wholly expecting him to decide. You know what? You can blow up and open up that door for me. What I really yeah. want. Go ahead. What I really want is the prequel story to that droid before, where it's just him constantly trying to find a way to kill himself. Because that's what I got from that character episode one. This droid didn't really care about anything else. It just wanted to blow up. It really into a town of like bandits or whoever those. Um, a villainy. Yeah, I think they were just raiders that kind of took over that little area. It's like, hey, I'm here to uh, kill you, so uh, come at me. I just, I, I like the idea of kind of like a Han Solo-esque thing where they just do a prequel story all about this IG-11, and it's just, the only reason he lives to the point he does is because every time he's in a point where he's like, time to kill myself, there's just another bounty hunter there who's like, Fuck off! No, we can still win. <laughs> I just imagine a scene where he's like, like, uh, kind of like almost like the end of uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, of where he's just sitting there in like a diner or something like that, and someone bursts the door. It's like we're here to capture everyone, and you can see his face just light up. <laughs> it finally comes to the realization at the end. It's like I don't trust humans. <laughs> but also, there's definitely going to be a scene where like he's just sitting in his home, which I assume he has. And someone, like, knocks on the door, and it's just, like, a door-to-door -door salesman, and he's like, I cannot be captured, and he just blows up his own fucking home. There's one very patient manufacturer who keeps rebuilding him every time he blows up. But we keep putting the bomb in there for some reason. <laughs> yeah, keep putting the bomb back inside. <laughs> Maybe this time he won't. Oh, boy. Uh, now, uh, on the idea of Mandalorian specifically, uh, through... If we're going purely off the canon of the movies and the such, uh, not the books, we've never had a real good Mandalorian. And I don't mean, like, in the sense of good and evil. I mean, like, a Mandalorian that's competent. We've yeah. never had a Mandalorian. 
Uh, no, Bo- we've had Mandalorians before, because Boba have Fett we? was a Mandalorian. Uh, I don't think he was. He was never mentioned to be a Mandalorian. He wore the Mandalorian armor. But he might have been at one point, but he was fine with uh, taking off his... Or Jango Fett, anyway, was fine with taking off his helmet. Yeah, that he was... Jango Jango Fett's the one I meant, not Boba Fett. And I think it's the difference between... Because there were Mandalorians as both a race and as a religion, kind of like Jewish people exist in our current world, where there's both uh, ethnically Jewish and religiously Jewish. And I think the same thing exists with regards to Mandalorians. And I believe Jango Fett was... Uh, ethnically Mandalorian, but wasn't a practicer of the faith. But also, it's entirely possible that this whole code of never taking your helmet off has spanned in the time between the prequels and the kind of modern movies, just because most Mandalorians have been killed off and driven underground by this time. Yeah, true. So, uh, clearly, the big question I had from uh, they've never mentioned or they never called Jango Fett or Boba Fett. Mandalorians in the movies, and from what I've read, they were never referred to as such. Yeah, usually the armor is all you really need to be considered a Mandalorian uh, in some level, and then beyond that, it's kind of how things break down. Uh, but the concern I had, obviously, or the big question was, is the Mandalorian going to be competent, or is he going to Mr. Magoo his way through most of these situations? And I think they did a little bit of both, honestly. There's a little bit of Mr. Magooing, but I definitely think they played him off as being a lot more competent than some of the earlier Mandalorian or theoretical representations of Mandalorians we've had. Like, we definitely get the impression that he is a really competent fighter, but he's not perfect in his fighting manner. He's not clean whatsoever. Also has very good comedic timing, because uh, the first guy he captures in the first episode, where there's a bar fight that breaks out, he beats the crap out of them, and takes him back to the ship, and the guy's like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom, and he just kind of like lets him go. And then when oh, he's yeah. going through the, ba- uh, the bottom of the ship, and he finds the, uh, uh, darn, what's it, uh, carbonite uh, thing, and he's like, I'm not making it home, am I? And he just goes back, he's like, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Just instantly freezes him. But, uh... One thing I want to mention, my first thought when I first realized that Mandalorians, due to their creed, never take off their helmets, I thought they meant ever, ever. So I'm like, how thick is that guy's beard under that? Nope, just they're not allowed to take off the helmet in the company of other people. They're not allowed to show their face, essentially. Yeah, yeah. because the idea is like, I don't think that goes back to, and again, my Star Wars lore isn't top-notch, but I believe that goes back to when Mandalore fell and there were so few of them left, the idea was that uh, Mandalorian was not an individual, but like uh, an image from that point on. So to show their unity, they don't show their face because the face didn't matter. It was just the Mandalorian. That is the way. It's also the time when Mandalorians grew beyond just a race of people into this whole religion that people started following was after the fall of Mandalore when they realized that they didn't have the population to keep up the whole Mandalorian people, so they started spreading out and training other people in their ways and kind of allowing more people to become Mandalorian. Like the main character, the Mandalorian. Who, who is was, not a Mandalorian. called a foundling. Yeah. He was found as a child, raised as a Mandalorian. Yeah, he was not born a Mandalorian, he was raised a Mandalorian. Very specific distinction. 
I didn't choose the Mandalorian life. The Mandalorian life chose me. This is the opposite, where he definitely did choose the Mandalorian life. Yeah. Also, just to take a moment for the casting, uh, Pedro Pascal, great choice for playing this character. Well, I love all the fucking memes that came out about it because of the fact that Pedro Pascal in uh, Game of Thrones dies because he takes his helmet off or refuses to wear a helmet. And then in this fucking series, he refuses to take his helmet off. And so he finally learns his lesson and survives till the end of the, at least, season, not necessarily series. Now, to be fair in the Game of Thrones aspect, I don't think having a helmet was going to change that situation too much. No, probably not, but the memes were still pretty fantastic about it. And, uh, I get... Sorry, go ahead. There you go. I don't know what I was going to say anymore. (laughs) Uh, What I was going to say was, another thing, not really a casted person for playing the child which has uh, been dubbed by the internet as Baby Yoda uh, but uh, both of these characters together kind of is what makes the series the western style that it is because uh, it very much follows the trope of the lone gunman walks into a town and disrupts the order of someone with power and then the rest of it is trying to fight against that person in this case the remnant of the empire and he tries to maintain his way of life to the best he can yeah, so the story after, because he finds the child when he raids this spot at the end, because he ends up making a deal with uh, a Remnant Empire uh, outfit because they have uh, Beska Steel, which is the Mandalorian's uh, main material, I guess, the best way to put it. It's from Mandalore, and it's the best metal you can find, pretty much. Beskar. Oh, Beskar, yeah. Yeah, it's the steel that was from Mandalore and was kind of mined out and stolen after the war with Mandalore. And, yeah, they're slowly winning back their stores to build proper Mandalorian armor out of. Yeah, because at the beginning, uh, uh, Din Djarin, uh, who is the Mandalorian, has a very, like, I think it's just his helmet and maybe a gauntlet that's actually made from Mandalorian steel. Yeah. Is his helmet even made out of uh, Beskar at the beginning? I thought his helmet was one of the pieces that got replaced. I think uh, the helmet was. Because uh, I believe I the think... order is he gets first, uh, darn, what's it? The shoulder piece. The, pa- the pauldron is the first piece he actually gets in the show. Yeah, then he gets yeah. the chest piece. Uh, well, he kind of gets like a full like torso piece, actually, with all the steel he gets when he returns. Yeah, I think the, um, I think his helmet was Beskar, Beskar originally. Yeah, I think the the helmet is the important thing that when uh, you are a Mandalorian, your helmet kind of has to be made of it. Yeah, okay, that, that might make sense. Image. That might make sense. I might be misremembering. Yeah, because where they can't take off the helmet and it's kind of like the identifying piece of the armor, usually that... I, I can't think of a situation even in any of like the Legend stuff now where the helmet wasn't initially. That's fair. But also, they never mentioned what material it was, just that it was old needed replacing uh, but yeah he ends up uh, getting Yoda after making that deal with the Empire to bring him back alive or dead if needed and then we quickly find out that there's a lot more people that were sent on this mission to go get the child yes everyone which brings me to another question I had about the series how do those tracking fobs even work I think they're kind of like a beacon compass where you point it in a direction and it just tells you yes it's, they, I believe it's had tracking fobs that were linked to this baby Yoda. No one knew what it was. They only knew like its age and last known location. Yet these tracking fobs can take 
people directly to it. Oh, I believe they're keyed into the thing's DNA somehow, to kind of go into it a little bit, uh, because it's suggested... I don't know if it's suggested, but this is at least how I interpreted events, was that uh, the child originally was in the kind of ownership of the Empire and was stolen by raiders, and so that's why they need the bounty hunters to go track them down. And it's not that they don't know what it is, it's that they're refusing to kind of give people too much information before they actually accept the job or go down and track it down, because tell someone too much. And then... As an additional note onto how it all works and why they have its DNA is because if you look at the beginning of the first episode, or not the beginning of the first episode, but there's the two people who hire him from the Empire. There's the evil guy who tells him, yeah, kill it if you have to, but bring it back here. And then there's the younger guy who's very clearly like, nope, don't kill it, bring it back here alive, we need it alive. That guy is wearing the same outfit as the people who worked at the cloning facility in the prequels so i oh, think I it's implied that he uh baby yoda or the child or whatever you want to call it is actually a clone presumably of either yoda or yaddle or some other member of that species that we've never met before that the people that make star wars have decided to never name and that's why it's now baby yoda uh, like just give it a goddamn name there doesn't need to be some secret around it oh we'll find out the name in the next season but, like, why are they being secretive about it? It's not like the name of the species gives away key plot details unless their name is, like, Forciuses or some <laughs> dumb shit like that. Is They're the Wills. No matter how much I want to know the name of the race, the point is the story is told from the point of view of the uninformed. Yeah, uh, I mean... Uh, the point of view that we get the story I, from, not... they have no idea who... The what sort of race the baby is from, so why should we know? Clarify, I'm not saying that we should have this information from the Mandalorian show, where one of the characters says, Oh, that's a baby, blah blah blah. I'm saying their fucking Star Wars Lucasfilm should have told us what fucking species Yoda was after fucking episode two of the original trilogy. And, and actually, like, uh, fun little fact here for you guys, too, uh, in the, that uh, vein of things, too, with The Mandalorian, we actually don't get the names of a lot of characters until much later in the series. Yeah. Most characters are known by some kind of weird, like, homonym for them. Like, we have The Mandalorian, The Child, I forget what we call the member of the Empire, but he's He's actually called The Client. The Client, that's what it is. Uh, uh, the only person that gets a name early, I think, is The Doctor is with him, which Quill? is... Dr. Pershing. Oh, yeah, Queel. No, Queel didn't get named until the end. Yeah, because it's when uh, the uh, new guy who was leading the Empire, uh, Darren, what was his name? Gideon, I think? Yeah, Moth yeah, Gideon. Moth Gideon comes in, and his big thing of showing that he has power is he pretty much names everybody. Yeah. Okay. But no, I thought we got Queel's name. Queel's name until uh, near the end when Mando was on his way back to confront the client. Okay, I thought we had got him in the first episode, but once again, it's been a while since I've actually watched the series, so I'm going to have to go back and rewatch The Mandalorian. Now, uh, on the back to the fob thing, I actually had another problem with how this was playing out. The first one, why was The Mandalorian the only one who seemed to have gotten instructions to keep the child alive, if possible? Because everyone else comes into this guns a-blazing. 
even well, the, even the droid's like, well, they wanted him dead, and just goes to shoot him at the end. My thoughts behind that was because he's the Mandalorian. Mandalorians are known to be honor for honorable and really skilled warriors. So if anyone would have the skill to bring it in alive, it would be the Mandalorian. Well, I think that's actually an argument against why they did it that way, because no one else seems to have gotten the order to keep him alive, and if you want it potentially brought in alive, the way you do that isn't to tell a bunch of dishonorable people, bring him back dead, but to tell them they'll only get money if he's brought back alive. I think instead the reason is that as I kind of already stated, the younger guy was the only one who seemed to really be arguing for him to be brought back alive, and the older gentleman didn't really seem to care, and I get the feeling that the older guy was the only one who actually interacted with any of the other bounty hunters, and he was just like, yeah, kill the kid. <laughs> and it, the only reason that we get the idea that the child might be wanted alive is because that younger guy happened to be there when the Mandalorian received his contract. Yeah, that does make sense, because... We also got that scene where uh, Mandalorian first went to meet the client, where the doctor happens to accidentally stumble into the room. So he probably wasn't even supposed to be in the meeting. True. Uh, the other issue I had was, the only thing that any of these bounty hunters had was that the fob points to it and it's 50 years old, but they all seem to instantly know it's the baby. Yeah. Yeah, that one is a little bit more of a stretch given that the fact that this species hasn't been named and we've only seen three examples of it throughout the entire series, presumably it's a very rare species, so the idea of seeing that thing and being like, yeah, that's a 50-year-old right there, seems like a bit of a stretch. Also, why are they going in, like, you know, the, the humanoid years and not just the, oh, it, this is the age of the species? Yeah, why don't... You would think, given that you're in space... The concept of a year makes no more sense anymore, so you would start referring to things like by the fraction of its life cycle that it's completed. A human would be, at ten years old, would just be like, yeah, that thing's like a tenth of the way through its life, whereas like fucking Baby Yoda, they'd be like, yep, that's still an infant and it's about the equivalent of one human year old or some shit like that. Or just say it's like, a child like every other person in this universe. If they just had a better fucking metric for referring to things. Because... I never thought about the fact that since it's all different planets in a different galaxy... Each years make no fucking sense. Of a year, yeah. Oh. It bugs the shit out of me that, like, in lots of different uh, kind of sci-fi movies and TV shows and media in general, they still refer to shit in terms of years, and it's just like... Years don't make sense if you have more than one solar system in mind. They immediately stop making sense. If you have more than one fucking planet, years stop making sense. Because a Mars year is completely different from an Earth year. Ugh. Anyways. And that pretty, much wraps up, and that pretty much wraps up episode one. <laughs> yeah, that's episode one. Uh, so then we go into episode two where... We get everyone's favorite Jawas. Yes, we get... So... The Mandalorian decides he's going to bring the kid back, as he's been told, and immediately finds his ship stripped of fucking parts by the goddamn Jawas. And now, the thing I do like about this is where he is a Mandalorian, so there's obviously going to be parallels to Jango Fett, uh, is the fact that his gun literally disintegrates people, which is like a fun little callback to Darth Vader in uh, the original trilogy. No disintegrations? Like, no disintegrations! <laughs> it's like, oh, is this just a Mandalorian <laughs> thing? Do they just disintegrate everybody? <laughs> 
I really enjoyed the fucking scene we get where he decides to raid the Jawa ship and like is clearly more capable than the Jawas, but like their sheer numbers and like the and defensive the fact that nature, in an impenetrable fortress on tracks, yeah, the sand crawler. That makes it just impossible for him to do fucking anything to them. And when he finally climbs to the top, he just gets tased and falls off. And then he's told he has to deal with them instead of just trying to take back his own stuff. Because in Jawa culture, the moment they stripped his ship of parts, it became theirs. And I, I kind of want to know how they value things. Because all of his ship's parts... They trade back to him for an egg. I mean, that, that's probably like a delicacy for them, like the mudhorn egg. True, but, but also, still, they could given have sold it a little higher, given the nature of the Jawas' kind of strip mining methods of stripping every single ship they come across for parts, I have a feeling they had more than enough ship parts to like the point where the ship parts from his ship didn't really even encompass like a tenth of their entire stock so i don't think they put any particular value on his ship parts when it was such a small percentage of their entire kind of stuff that they have from stripping different ships down and it also could have just been they thought he was gonna die and then it was a gamble they took yeah true i suppose i, I mean he fucking would have if it weren't for the force powers that's true yeah but when they finally get the egg at the end it's like, what do they do? Are they going to sell it? No. They just crack it open on the spot and start eating it. To be fair, I was expecting they were going to just break it and eat it. Well, also, yeah, imagine how fucking rare it is for them to actually get to eat that fucking shit because of the fact that the only way they're going to get the Mudhorn egg is if they have someone capable enough of defeating a Mudhorn, which the Mandalorian wasn't even capable He was only capable of because he had a Force user on his side. Yeah, and it almost killed him, too, at that point, so, like... It's definitely the Mudhorn is a little bit more uh, defensible than what you'd expect. So it, you would probably need a group of people to take it down. And then at that point, the cost of that egg for the jaw was getting is probably a little too high if you go that high. Yeah. yeah. So I think it. I think it's pretty reasonable, their kind of exchange rate and the value. Not necessarily that they place on these ship parts, but the value they place on that fucking egg. I think they priced the egg appropriately. That makes sense. If you look at it logically. Still. Space travel for egg. Yeah. Yeah. Good trade. Especially where Jawas, in pretty much every context they've ever been presented, have no fucking interest in space travel. They just want to loot shit off the planet they're currently on. Yeah, and then he ends up returning to the ship, uh, giving him the egg, he gets his parts, and uh, Quill, uh, at this point we only know is the vapor farmer, uh, essentially just helps him repair the ship in a day, and then he goes off. Yeah. And he does the terrible thing. I believe the episode's even called The Sin, which yeah. makes sense, because he sells the child to the Empire for a whole bunch of Besker Steel, so he can get a whole new set of armor. And, like, I believe he even talks to the armorer about it, and he's like, yeah, this sh to help out the entire community, but also, like, a full, like, chest piece of Besker Steel. 
Yeah, so I, I guess uh, what I was saying earlier, if there was two sets of two episodes, I guess, because this episode is kind of very reliant on being connected to the first two, in a sense. Yep. So it's like a set of three and a set of two. Yeah, even three, though... Uh, three unconnected episodes. Yeah, even though really episode three is the one that starts the trend of Baby Yoda's there at the beginning and the end of the episode, regardless of what happens in between. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he goes back to his clan that's hiding out in the sewers with all of the steel. But he keeps asking him, it's like, what are they going to do with the kid? Uh, but no one wants to talk about it because the guild rules. Uh, the part I liked about this is when he goes back to the guild to, uh, after he gets all of his armor made to get a new mission. And he's talking to Carl Weathers' character. And he's like, uh, my best client. And it's like, who else had the fob? It's like, everybody. Everybody else had a fob. But you're the only one who played this mission. You're my favorite. Oh, yeah. Not a way to paint a target on someone's back. But like, also, that does create a slight issue in that, like, he calls out the fact that literally everyone else had a fob, but in the first episode, he seems very cagey about whether or not he actually wants to give him this fob. He's like, oh, I got all these clients. He's like, none of these are worth enough. Do you have anything better? Like, I mean, if you insist, I guess I do have this other fob. It's like, you've already given it to everyone fucking else. Why aren't you to give it to the Mandalorian and for you to it's probably more the fact that uh, he already gave out the job to so many people. He didn't want those people to get mad at him by sending out the elite. Fair enough. Because that would be the yeah, kind of per- saying, like the spokesperson of the guild saying, you guys aren't good enough to do this job. Well, to be fair, I don't even think that the Mandalorian was specifically known as being particularly take capable before this mission yeah i think he really gets his fame from the uh baby yoda mission essentially well the baby yoda mission and then immediately attacking the empire base after giving them the baby i think that also drew a lot of attention to the clan yeah yeah and you can even see throughout the episode that he's definitely regretting it because uh when he's talking to the person in charge of his clan too it's like Oh, what did all this damage to your chest piece? Oh, it's the mud horn. Oh, that will be your symbol. It's like, nah, it shouldn't be. I, I, I didn't really do anything. <laughs> the child saved I me. I wouldn't have... By an enemy. I... Your enemy helped you? Uh, they didn't know they were my enemy. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, he clearly feels a lot of regret. And it's like, I don't deserve to be considered uh, the one who killed the mud horn just because of the fact that, yeah, he needed the help of the child in order to defeat it. And then the fun part of this is after all of like this build up, he goes back to his ship to go do the mission that's very far away, and he goes to push the lever, and the ball is missing off the top, which is the baby kept playing with the whole time. Yep. He just that's immediately turns awesome the ship like, up. Yeah, that's what turns him back towards rescuing the child. The ball didn't actually do anything; it just just a knob that attached to the top of a lever. But he is immediately reminded of the child. Yeah. Sense to go back for him. Immediately turns off the ship, walks back, and just destroys everything. <laughs> yeah, that was a fantastic scene. Him fucking wrecking shit with all the Empire troops that were there. And then we end up seeing fucking, like, all the other Mandalorians come out to, like, help him escape. Them flying alongside him and being like, this is the way. Oh, that was fantastic. Yeah, this is, this is one of the cool, like, very Western style scenes that show up throughout the series. The first one being, obviously, the shootout in episode one, when he's getting Baby yeah, Yoda. The, the uh, guild droid. Yeah, and then uh, this one is the standoff where it's him versus pretty much the whole guild while trying to get the baby out of town. And then, you know, the allies show up to bust him out and he makes the run for it. This one also had that, like, 
incredibly like western heavy moment where he's hit sitting in the back of a cart while everyone's raining fire down on him and he has no way of getting out and like manages to launch the cart so that he can get out of town once his friends get in to like draw fire off of him like that entire moment was very reminiscent of a hundred different westerns yeah oh yeah and then we get the, uh, of course, that episode ends off with the him getting to the ship in the showdown with Carl Weathers, where he shoots first, but he hits him in the uh, Besker uh, steel that he has. Yeah. And uh, we get the scene of him flying away, Mandalorians flying beside with their jetpack, and he says, I need to get one of those. <laughs> Gotta get me one of those. Which gets paid off by the end of the series, when he gets himself one of those. And then, uh, yeah, from this point, the stories aren't really connected in any way aside from it's just, you know, place to place, them trying to make a living, I guess. There's a bunch of individual episodes that are all kind of self-contained stories, but end up all kind of getting harked back to in the final two episodes. Well, it's we kind of like a lot a, of one of those... With an overarching story, yeah, it's... the elements kind of rooted into points. Yeah, which is yeah. kind of like one of those Western things of all of them kind of in a way work towards the climax, where in somewhere or another it provides something to the character that they're going to need. Yeah, it's like, uh... Like episode four, he has... They try to, uh, do as best as they can, but things happen, the story gets a little deeper, and they're forced to move on. Yeah, so like, the episodes are Sanctuary, uh, Gunslinger, Prisoner, and then we get the last two episodes. So the next three episodes are the ones that kind of, like, give them a little thing. So, the Sanctuary episode... Sanctuary was, uh, like what I was talking about earlier, the huge juxtaposition between the high-class nobility and politicians and all the futuristic techscapes of the cities. And all of a sudden, we're hit with this tribe out in the middle of nowhere in some remote planet just harvesting shrimp with woven baskets. Well, the part well, this I... one's also... This one's a perfect example of, like, different points in the kind of these three intermittent episodes building towards the finale because we get introduced to the ex like shock trooper uh who's kind of hiding out on this planet to avoid being caught by the empire uh who ends up kind of befriending the mandalorian very begrudgingly and ends up working with him in the episode uh finale even though during this episode they want nothing to do with each other in fact kara fucking hates the mandalorian when he first shows up because he's just gonna draw the attention of the empire who she, once again, wants nothing to do with. And also, uh, he's a bounty hunter. And there's that oh, beautiful... She knows there's a bounty on her head. And there's that beautiful scene where they're, like, about to kill each other, and they just hear, like, the slurping of the soup, and they look back, and just maybe Yoda drinking the soup. Drinking his bone broth while staring at them. Now, uh, the thing I... There's a few things I loved about... Uh, there's a few things I loved about this episode. Uh, the main reason is, this episode reminds me so much of one of my favorite, like, old-time films, which is Seven Samurai. Yes, this episode's great, uh, kind of reminiscent of that. And... Uh, but the other fun thing, too, is the fact that when he's getting ready to leave, because, like, oh, Cardoon was here first, we gotta go somewhere else, and then the two villagers are there, and they're trying, like, we'll give you all this money, and you've gotta just help us, you're Mandalorian, right? And then he doesn't want to help them at all, but as soon as, like, ah, oh, damn, we gotta, like, it's a day's walk out back to the middle of nowhere where our town is, like, wait, say that again! It's like, you live in the middle of nowhere, huh? Sounds like the perfect place to live. I'll happily 
give you protect in exchange for being able to live in the middle of nowhere. Also, give me that and money also anyways. Also, give me the money that you were <laughs> going to give me. Yeah, I still want the fucking money. But, uh, that was... I guess one of my first and only minor issues with the series was uh, in the scene where he's in the village and just tells the woman that he never takes his helmet off. It's part of the creed. And then he's just looking out the window at the kids playing out beside the house he's in. And, and he, he fucking has, takes it off right in front of them. And it was like, any one of them could look at him and then he would have broken the creed. Or have to kill all those children. He does still have to fucking eat, and he can't eat through the helmet, so... Yeah, but he doesn't have to stand right in front of the open window. Not wrong. Uh, that is the kind of first one where we get that, like, reference to the Creed of him not being able to remove his helmet, though. Because uh, I think it's hinted at a couple times, but it's, it's never explicitly... turns to the, uh... The, the Mandalorian covert that like he's never supposed to take off or the mask's never supposed the helmet's never supposed to be removed. But then it wasn't until this point where it clarifies and says, Oh, so it never it's never to come off in front of other people. Yeah, there's two yeah. things that kind of like dishonor you really greatly as a Mandalorian. That's a living person seeing your face or someone disarming you. Yeah. Mm. Always gotta have his weapons on him. Uh, but yeah, uh, we also get introduced to uh, the actually pretty awesome character of Omera, uh, who is the uh, town widow that uh, Kara keeps saying, hey, maybe you should settle down. Definitely digs you. Wink, wink. And yeah. for some reason, there's also an amazing shot. Yeah, I thought I was expecting a payoff to that, but there, there just wasn't. She was just a really good shot, and that was it. Yeah. I was expecting at least like a throwaway line about like, we find out that she used to work for like the Empire or something like that and decided to leave that world behind, but nope. She's that's just a good shot. It's also a less common trope, though, in a lot of movies where they have to train up a ragtag group of non-combat-ready villagers. Yeah, like, it's pretty... One of them is always a good shot. It's pretty much, like, exactly the story of Seven Samurai, where it's the small village that they can only really pay the warriors in food, so they have to find samurai who will help them, and they get seven to fight off a whole wave of bandits, who then end up having the big uh, reveal that, oh, they have guns, which is kind of, in this one, the... Uh, ATST. Hmm. Uh, so it was really cool, like seeing those parallels, especially where if you know the history of the original Star Wars, that uh, George Lucas was actually a big Kurosawa fan, and he based a lot of his film stuff off of Kurosawa films, which Seven Samurai is. And the first Star Wars movie is actually almost shot for shot, uh, Hidden Fortress. Yes, I remember reading about that. Yep. So seeing that kind of homage, because when you really think about it too. Uh, samurai movies and westerns are pretty much the exact same thing, just different styles. Whereas the western focuses on the cowboy, and the samurai movie focuses on the samurai. It was also yeah, another the... big change in perspective, because back in the movies, taking on a group of ATSTs wasn't a too big of a deal for like the military. But then, there's the bounty hunter, and then the ex-shock trooper, they're like, this thing is way too much to take on just us. Like, this yeah, would get, kill, this will kill all of us. You get a lot of those moments where it's, in fucking the movies, it's one of those things where, like, you'll take on a group of them, and they'll just kind of be fodder, and then it kind of wears down the effect of, like, these are actually terrifying things to come up against. So then, seeing these two very capable warriors, like, discussing them and be like, 
outside of our skill range, we cannot handle this honor. It kind of reinforces also... that idea of like, not we're not the rebels. We don't have we don't have an army of Ewoks. Yeah, I also like how uh, just to add to the threat of the ATST, the red glow that came from inside the carriage that made it look like it had two glowing red eyes. Yeah, that was definitely a really nice effect on that fight. Yeah, that was super cool. So episode five. Yeah, the gunslinger. The gunslinger. Which, I'm going to be honest, I think the weakest episode, but also kind of the stupidest episode. I think this episode was super fucking cool, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, I understand it had its flaws, but I think it was super cool in that, like, it introduces the idea of, like, him just kind of coincidentally running into a different bounty hunter who needs his help, and then, like, very quickly realizes this isn't a regular bounty. We're hunting one of the world's most capable assassins. What the fuck are you doing? Just kind of lazily flying out towards her. She can shoot us from out here. Yeah. And it kind of Toro introduces... Yeah, Toro Calican is the aspiring bounty hunter, and Shand is yeah. the Fennec Shand. capable one. Played by Ming-Na uh, also hey, known as, get... uh, she played uh, Chun-Li in the Street Fighter movie, uh, the original Street Fighter movie, I might add, uh, and uh, she is uh, May uh, from uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The really cool thing about the Gunslinger episode is that it introduces you not only to uh, the Mandalorian's like combat prowess, but also just like how good he is at tactics and how he understands like what they need to do in order to kind of overcome these ridiculous odds and goes about defeating Shand and then later on Calican when he inevitably stabs him in the back and he kind of works out these plans where he is clearly in the worst position but manages to kind of win in spite of that fact. Now I want to point out Calican wasn't smart in any sense so I never felt there was a risk or a threat to anyone involved when he was the one in charge. Yeah no Calican was an idiot but like he did manage to kidnap the child and almost steal uh, the Mandalorian ship. And I mean, it was only because of the fact that he's terrible that the Mandalorian managed to kind of walk out of that one completely unscathed. Now, Calican only did one smart thing through this. Because if we want to look at what he did in this whole episode, he shot and killed a defeated woman. Uh, he yep. stole a baby from an old lady. And yep. spoke menacingly to the Mandalorian and complained that he didn't get there fast enough when he took the only speeder. Now, the only smart thing that Calican did was when Fennec was trying to do the whole, hey, if you uncuff me, we can beat the Mandalorian, and you've got to take what's easier here. And the smart thing was he didn't trust her and uncuff her. That's the only smart thing he did, because if he would have been the smartest he could and did the simplest thing there, he would have just taken her in and got the money for it and left it at that. Yeah. She was already cuffed. While, while the Mandalorian was gone, he would have just taken her on her speeder and gone the fuck back and abandoned her to or abandoned the mandalorian and took the whole purse for himself or hell even take the baby from the old lady and leave yeah if he was a little smarter he would have realized oh this mandalorian can get out of town with all of those bounty hunters after him unscathed how am i supposed to uh take him in when i'm just me not even a bounty hunter to be fair, that is another classic trope of Westerns and this whole idea of, like, there's someone who has a reputation for being a badass who runs from town to town and you don't fully understand his reputation 
someone spells it out for you, and then you realize, I'm going to be the one to defeat him this time. It's a classic thing that keeps fucking happening. So the fact that they had a character who was dumb enough to think that he would be capable of outsmarting the Mandalorian is not at all that surprising. Yeah, I just, like, I, personally, I found it the weakest episode because of the things. There's a few things that definitely could have made it stronger, making, you know, Calican even the least bit, you know, or even make it seem like he was devious and he knew the whole time and he was just setting this up to try to kill the Mandalorian uh, would have been yeah. better. Or having that he, you know, was stupid enough that he fell for Fennec's thing, and then Fennec is the one he has to fight at the end. I think it would have been a lot cooler if, like, they threw in a line to that effect when, like, Fennec is trying to talk him into, uh, like, working with her to capture the Mandalorian. And, like, before he shoots Fennec and leaves her, he throws in a line of, like, you think I don't know that? And then shoots her, like, showing that he already knew about the Mandalorian's reputation and the bounty. That being said, we go what is arguably one of the weaker episodes in the series to what I think was probably my favorite episode, which oh, the, was The yeah. Prisoner. The Prisoner was great. Amazing. The Prisoner was like, what if a horror movie... In space, but it was the Mandalorian that you were running from. What if the protagonist was the horror? And I just love watching him. Like even in the beginning, when fucking the one guy who's or the girl who's worked with him before, they see a whole bunch of like battle droids coming towards them, and everyone's like, "Oh God, what do we do?" And she's like, "Nah, he's got this. Trust me. I hate droids. This is all him. He doesn't even want your guys' fucking." I did. The one thing I didn't love about this one was, uh, oh, what was the Mayfield or Mayfield's, uh, the ex Imperial sharpshooter, the one who has a throwaway line about how he actually is quite accurate because he wasn't a stormtrooper, he was a sharpshooter. He just, like, doesn't ever seem, once again, he doesn't seem particularly capable in this episode. He doesn't seem like a overly threatening villain no but they completely make up for that by having him not be the villain that anyone should be worried about it's the brother who they're releasing from the prison is the actual villain you should be worried about yeah uh, uh kin or quinn quit keen i think yeah. i don't know how to pronounce twi'lek names yeah it's him and then his sister uh, kian uh who is the crazy lady with knives you know the standard person you need for any team for anything uh, yeah, there was the pilot, the Q nine. Uh, then there is the strongman, Berg, the Vorian. Yeah, and the I think the really fun part about it is very quickly we discover that the droid is going to be piloting. The Mandalorian's like, nope, I'm not letting a droid pilot my ship. He's like, we don't want you. We literally only want your ship. You're not gonna pilot the ship. You're not capable of piloting the ship for what we need you to do. It's just like. I think it was a really fun line where, like, he's forced into letting this droid do the piloting. And the droid does a fine job at piloting, but obviously can't be fucking trusted by, uh... By anyone. Because, yeah. as even the criminals themselves said, the droid didn't even give them a proper countdown when they were about to arrive. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, we're here, stop. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the fun twist in this one is, at the end, it, it, I guess the reveal isn't... A big one, considering the fact we don't know who uh, Keen is. So, like, just like, oh, it's him, and then they betray him. Doesn't come off strong, but definitely, like, them betraying him makes sense, considering, you know, at least one of them had a bad history with him, and the other two just don't trust him and keep posturing around him. Yeah. 
And well, because of that, if they get rid of one person that none of them have any connection with, eh, they have a bigger cut of pay. I do definitely kind of respect the keen re- uh, reveal, though, because I'd much rather him being someone who we know nothing about, but, like, the other characters clearly know a thing or two about, to the opposite, where the show goes out of its way to do, like, a backstory episode that is not at all related to the plot, just so that we can see Keen beforehand. Yeah. Like, I really... I like them kind of trusting that we as the audience are competent enough to follow and be Keen and see everyone else's reaction to Keen to kind of understand. He's not probably a good guy. He's probably a little bit of a shit that is probably for the best if he doesn't make it out of this. Well, they make that very clear at the beginning when uh, the Mandalorian makes it out and he starts locking down the ship and then uh, it's Keen and Mayfield and they're leaving and he's like, get me out of the ship and you'll get paid better. It's like, well, what about your sister? He's like, what about her? Yeah, he's not a good guy. I do really enjoy the way that uh, the Mandalorian manages to kind of solve the entire backstabbing situation where he takes the tracker that's calling in the rebels or the rebel alliance whatever the fuck it was the one human on the ship called in the new republic that's what it is the new republic uh and he takes the beacon that's calling them in and brings it to like the crime outpost just so that they get destroyed by fucking x-wings while they're trying to backstab the mandalorian yeah because we get that was we get the fun thing of really good payoff him one by one taking down the whole team which uh the best part of all that was I do enjoy the fight with Berg, but the flickering lights as he's sneaking up on Mayfield is probably the best scene in this whole episode. Mm-hmm. The fight with Berg was fantastic, but yes, the flickering the lights were really fight. good. The close to that fight was amazing. Where he uses the, the like, door, blast and Berg door. just slowly starts to get up, opening the door with a big grin on his face, like, I'm too strong for you, and then he just closes the second door in front of him. <laughs> And then the payoff that he actually didn't kill any of them, he just locked them up, and then he gets Keen at the end, yeah, and he's gonna shoot Keen, because, like, oh yeah, we're all like, yeah, Keen deserves to get killed here. But he's like, if you do this, you don't get paid. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. He immediately... Well, the best part about that is, you know he didn't come up with the plan in that moment. He was already planning on at least backstabbing the guy who hired them, because there's no way... Like, Keen's like, you don't get paid unless you bring me home with you. And the Mandalorian was like, that's a good point. Give me a moment while I run back down to the, like, cargo bay to pick up that beacon that's calling in the New Republic. Like, that was not a moment that happened in the show. I so he mean, definitely already had the beacon on him, yeah. prepared to use it for some uh, moment. Back in the fight against Berg. Yeah, they hinted at it, because when he's when looking he down, he's... There. Yeah, when he's fighting Berg, uh, when he's setting up the fight with Berg, he looks down and he sees the tracker, and that's kind of the last we see of it up to that point. So what I'm saying is, he clearly was planning this moment out ahead of time, and even if it seems like he's going to kill Keen, he clearly, like, has planned several steps ahead, knows he can't kill Keen, because if he kills Keen, he's not getting paid, and he needs the money from this job. And so we kind of get that whole idea of, like, it seems like it's possible he's going to do the dumb thing, but he's playing three-dimensional chess and is playing seven steps ahead. Now, my I guess my main issue with this one as a whole is the uh, uh, New Republic starts shooting pretty quickly. They, yeah, especially the way... realize, hey, they're readying... The distress beacon is coming from there, and they're readying an, an attack dro- drone. A gunship. 
a gunship that's coming directly towards us. But, like, also at the same time... They're just in time to not get spotted. The beacon is ostensibly held by Republic, or soldiers of some form, and is used to calling backup, but the beacon presumably isn't used to be like, destroy the place I currently am, it's, we're under attack and need support, so the fact that they tracked the beacon down, and... Yeah, they saw that they were under attack, but immediately decided to destroy the entire space station was a strong choice. Now, one of the criminals also, if I'm remembering correctly, did specifically say that the beacon that said uh, guard ship pilot operator dude was holding would call in a strike force to shoot down the ship. Like, it wasn't backup per se, but it was an attack force. Which begs the question of why would the guy trigger it? No, like, oh, I'm gonna push this button and kill us all if you don't leave. Well, was, I suppose that kind of makes sense. Cause... That he was belie- under the belief that he was gonna be killed regardless. So he And even beyond to... that, it was he a prison ship, so... It... Yeah. yeah, it's a prison ship, so it makes sense that the kind of directive that the Republic's operating under is destroy the ship before we let all of these high-value criminals just escape. Like... If your options are potentially kill one Republic soldier or let dozens of high-value prisoners escape, I think the option is very obvious. Potentially kill a single Republic soldier. And I'm, I'm going to throw in a little bit of logic for once. And uh, with all the security that's on the ship, they managed to bypass that. So normal criminals, if they tried this, would be detected right away. That person would know that danger was coming they'd be able to seal off the control room that they're in because it had two massive blast doors. Probably had a bunch of good protection on it, so if that whole ship was detonated, that control room was probably some sort of safe pod that was able to separately detach. That's fair. The blast doors might have been some sort of airlock-type situation. Yeah. Alright, that makes sense. And uh, now, just before we go to the last two episodes, there's actually something I meant to bring up um, about the episode The Gunslinger, which I didn't catch if anything was revealed on this, or if it had a payoff, or if it's setting up something else. But do you guys remember at the end when... Uh, we uh, had the footsteps walking towards Shan's corpse? Yeah, the, the mysterious figure that we never got a name of. Yeah, I do remember that. I don't think there was any payoff. I think that's uh, setting something up for season two. Uh, do you have any ideas of who you think it might be? If it's someone from the world already, or I, I so I have an idea. It's not a <laughs> keeping great in mind idea. this happened on Tatooine. Yes, I think let's let's hold off on our kind of expectations or our beliefs about what's coming for season two until we're done discussing the plot of season one. Because sure, still have a couple but more things to go through. But I have a couple theories for season two. I want to discuss with you guys oh, sure no problem uh so the last two episodes then that we have uh the first one is called the reckoning and the last one's called the redemption and uh this is pretty much the uh western trope of the standoff episode yeah he's yeah. walking into what he perceives is definitely a trap so he gathers what companions he can yeah he gets uh keel uh kara uh Ends up finding out that uh, IG-11 was rebuilt and repurposed as a nurse droid. Doesn't trust it in the slightest, because that thing was made to kill and was going to kill Baby Yoda. My favorite thing about this reveal, too, when they're talking about uh, 
him being reprogrammed and like the, the the flashback of all the training montage for it and then after all this there's just like the very like quiet stare down between ig and uh, the mandalorian and he just swings the cup up and it's like would you like some tea <laughs> well i was not expecting that whatsoever uh, but they end up having to come up with the plan because they receive the uh, message from carl weathers character uh, who wants to take out the client and free their town from control. Because and... there is a lot of stormtroopers showing up, and the guild is in a bad spot right now. And uh, he actually also believes that by killing the client, and they have no one else to work for, they will start working for him, because if they want a paycheck, they'll have to work for him. Yeah, either work for him or just scatter without bothering them. Yeah. So the plan seems to be going well. It's, uh, I believe, Kara, Carl Weathers, and Mandalorian uh, all go into town pretending to have the baby while they send Quill back uh, with the uh, baby Yoda to the ship and to enter uh, anti-siege mode, essentially, uh, with the IG unit. Yeah. Well, to be fair, the plan wasn't initially for them all to go in town. The plan was for Carl Weathers to betray the shit out of them. Yeah, he was going to betray only them. And only kind of changes his mind because the child saves his life yeah, yeah. baby yoda uses a uh, force heal which is the the first use of it he's in like, any what the hell uh, is that? media use that can't kill this baby yeah it's the first use of it in canon media right now or at least anything uh that's adjacent to the movies specifically mm-hmm. and then he changes his mind and kills both his allies this specific instance of it isn't the first time because he also uses the same well he uses the same force power earlier on in the series on the Mandalorian, or does he only try in the Mandalorian? Yeah. Stops he tries, but the Mandalorian, the Mandalorian just keeps picking it. Yeah, but picks him up, put him back in the cradle. Yeah. Okay, I knew he tried to. I didn't remember if he ever managed to actually pull it off. So yeah, this is the first time we actually see him use Force Heal, and that's what kind of encourages Carl Weathers to kill the other bounty hunters who he brought with him. He's kind of they were still planning on training them. Yeah, yeah, and instead now he's going to work with them to actually do what he suggested doing the first time around. Yeah, and that's where that plan is coming into place, where they send him back. Uh, they enter town, and probably one of the funniest things about this is when uh, they're taking him in and saying, oh, Cara Dune's the one that caught him with my help, and uh, we're going to, you know, give the baby to the person. And the Stormtrooper's like, oh, I'll give you 20 credits for that helmet. I'm like, that helmet is Beskar steel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or he's like, I'm, uh, uh, hell no, I'm like, gonna... What? No. Yeah, this is my trophy. It's going on my wall. I'm putting it on my wall. It's like, on your wall? It's like, shut up, I'm improvising. <laughs> uh, and then, obviously, there's the the big climax of this episode where uh, everything goes south really quickly, and then we find oh, out but that... First, but first, it was the good old, can you open the cradle? Can I see the asset? No, 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 it, it's asleep. It's like, oh, okay, okay, let me take this phone call. Well, no, because he specifically says, don't worry, we'll all be quiet. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. he just accepts that, too. He's like, alright, I guess we can't see it. Well, he definitely didn't see what's coming next. Because we find out that there's obviously someone above him, and this person is Moff Gideon, who then uh, pretty much reprimands him for, like, you don't have the child, I know you don't have the child, you idiot, and then just shoots up the place, killing all the stormtroopers on the inside. Also... Can we take a moment, because we talked a little bit about casting earlier. I think Moff Gideon was also fantastically cast. Uh, yes. He was When he first walked out and his first lines, they sounded, kind of to me, sounded too jovial for the scene. 
and just so out of place, I was kind of taken aback and almost laughed. But he's he's fun in that way too, though. He's the kind of character who like the fact that he sounds jovial in this very tense situation actually makes him far more terrifying because you're like he clearly has reason to believe that this is entirely going to work out fine yeah. for him. And as and he yes, continues to talk and as you learn a bit more about his character, then it's like, oh, this guy is completely confident in his situation and he has everything under his thumb. Like, so, uh, yeah. Even to the point where it's revealed that he knows everything about the characters who are inside there, even though there's no reason he should know who is inside that building, let alone their specific identities, which for the most part, have been hidden from us, the viewers. Yeah, uh, the big one that's like, oh, you know this identity was the fact they knew that uh, the Ma- uh, Mando's name was actually uh, Din. I think that was like, one, of the, one of the first times that we actually hear his name. That it was the first time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Pedro Pascal's character doesn't have a name until this moment. Yeah. And uh, everyone else, you can kind of assume like their names are common knowledge, like Carl Weathers' character and Cara Dune. Uh, but definitely no one, because even he, uh, he explains that, like, no one's used that name since he was, like, eight. Yeah. Well, it even gets to the point where, like, we have this reveal where Moff Gideon, we don't even for sure know his name at this point until he lists off the Mandalorian's name, and the Mandalorian's like, Moff Gideon, you're the only, or that's the only person who would know my name. And, yeah, it's this kind of intense reveal of, like, this guy is a force to be fucking reckoned with. We also get some great lines out of him, too, where he's, like, trying to negotiate with uh, getting the, the child. And they're like, how do we know we can trust you? He's like, you don't. You can't, honestly. <laughs> you just need to trust that I will do what is optimal for what I need. And right now, that's you alive. And right now is that baby. And you know where it is. Yeah, and then uh, on the other side of the story, as this all goes to shit, uh, Keel ends up getting uh, shot down by... Surprising enough, scout troopers. Yep. Because and... uh, in one of the like, this isn't actually in this episode, but those two characters end up having like one of the cooler scenes in the in the entire yes. series, where they're just shooting the shit at the beginning of the next episode. Yeah. Just like chatting say, to each other. This series has been, uh, it's had its comedic moments, but especially these last two episodes, incredibly serious, intense. It's essentially the climax of the series or the season. Well, it's pretty much like common oh, knowledge. Shit is just pure comedy. Well, it's like one of the situations where within and outside of the Star Wars universe, everyone kind of understands that uh, stormtroopers are complete shit at everything. <laughs> so well, the fact that they pull out their blasters and are trying to shoot this can that's like not even five feet away from it and missing it horribly, and then they just give up. But what I like is the reason they're waiting there. It's like, um, should we come in yet? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Moff, Gide- Moff Gideon's... Uh... Someone interrupted him, so we kind of shot them. Yeah, someone interrupted him, so we immediately murdered him, so we killed an officer, so this might uh, be a while. He, he already shot down an entire squad, so, uh, yeah, you might want to hold but, it a little bit longer. Let's wait specifically until we're called upon to go in, because we don't want to end up in that exact situation. Or the uh, one guy trying to see uh, the baby Yoda, it's like, you don't need to see it. <laughs> it hasn't moved in a while, you hit it pretty hard. more than me, yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, the big reveal of IG-88 showing up, uh, 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 IG-11. IG-11. Yep. Showing up and <laughs> I am a nurse droid. Uh, <laughs> These guys were fighters. Isn't that an assassin droid? 
I have my nurse. Immediately beat the shit out of them. Uh, I knew that was coming, but still, the payoff was incredible. Yeah, definitely the gem of this last episode is IG-11. Yes. Yeah. We also get the moment later on where uh, the Mandalorian gets his terrible head injury and is potentially dying from it, and he tells everyone to leave him because he can't take off his helmet to have someone care for him. And then IG-11's like, everyone go, I'll stay with him. It's like, uh, you should go to He's like, I am a nurse droid, I can't leave you to die. He's like, but I can't take my helmet off for you to care for me. He's like, no living person has ever seen me. Your specific creed is no living person can see you. I'm not living. Take off your fucking helmet. Well, and, so he just takes off his helmet and sprays the back of his head and he's good. Now, the thing I find funny about this is, because obviously earlier in the series, we had some of that, like, uh, chemistry between uh, Pedro Pascal's character and the village woman, who is the widow. Definitely, yeah. the chemistry between Taika Waititi as a robot and Pedro Pascal is a lot stronger than part like, yes. is this a thing? Well, to be honest, Taika Waititi is just amazing. I think everything he fucking touches is gold. And, and this episode uh, was directed by him as well. Yeah, so it makes sense that there's all these very humorous moments cutting through the kind of serious, darker undertones of the entire series and episode. And even was at the end when they're trying to make their escape from the lava pits, and like uh, IG is like, I, I the only one way you guys are getting out, you need to take the baby, promise it'll be safe, and I will self-destruct. He's like, no, we can't lose you, but I need you. Yeah, it's pretty great. Finally goes, he's finally made it from distrusting all droids, this one particularly, to trusting implicitly this one. The robot waifu, that's all that's happening. Yeah. Uh, but of course, uh, the other big thing of this episode is we get the last uh, upgrade, essentially, for the Mandalorian, which is he finally gets his, his jetpack, jetpack, and he gets his uh, sigil. Yep. yep. Uh, which he is, is now a clan of two. Yeah, a clan of two with the uh, Mudhorn being the symbol. Yeah, him and the child together are their clan. In the beginning, he couldn't take that as a sigil because he didn't earn the kill. But now that the armorer is aware of the child's existence. And it's like, oh, you two worked together to take out the Bighorn. You two are part of a new clan. Also, I like how she's like, you need to take him back to his kind so he can survive, but until then he's a foundling. And he's like, so I'm just supposed to go out and find some space wizards that are our enemies (laughs) and give the kid back to them? Yes. He's supposed to... Okay. Raise the child as a Mandalorian. Uh, find out its origins and return it to its own kind, and also, yeah, the people who did it are gonna fucking hate you. You just connected some dots for me, Peter. We'll get but to that dots... in a minute. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute, though. Alright. Though the idea of a Force-sensitive Mandalorian is pretty cool, because, uh, in the lore, there's only ever been one Ma- Force-sensitive Mandalorian before, I believe. Yes. Yeah, and we actually get a reference to him in this episode, and... After the whole final fight between uh, Mr. Mandalorian and Moff Gideon. Can we rename this show to Mr. Mandalorian? (laughs) (laughs) But yes, after the fight with him and Gideon, Gideon cuts his way out of a ship using the Darksaber. With a weird-looking energy blade when I first saw it, and then when he gets out and stands up, it looks like a lightsaber, but not. Yeah, it's a it's a the dark saber. It's a lightsaber that was used by the first ever force sensitive Mandalorian, yeah. who is also a Jedi. So I yes. 
Because After the man- watching that episode, I looked that up because I was dead curious about that. Yeah, so where this first ever Mandalorian to become a Jedi, he was tasked with creating his lightsaber as all Jedi are when they become a Jedi, or in theory most Jedi are, uh, at least back in the times with Jedi Councils and shit. Once again, going into lore that's not technically canon anymore, but what the fuck ever. <laughs> um, I officially consider it canonized because of the appearance of the Darksaber. I mean, the um, Darksaber has already shown up in canon, though. Oh, right, yes, because it was in Rebels? Yeah, it was Rebels. It was used by, I think... It was Darth Maul, wasn't it? Who had it for a bit? I think so. Potentially. I don't fully remember. But anyways, yes, this uh, Mandalorian Jedi, when making his own lightsaber, uh, tweaks the formula a little bit because uh, Mandalorians care very deeply about their weapons. And instead of creating a traditional lightsaber, he creates the dark saber. Uh, and their weapons are very advanced to begin with, so he's like, "Hey, let's uh, make this better." Yeah. So uh, we know that there's a connection now between rebels to this. So at some point in between there, the dark saber ends up getting to Moff Gideon. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. But it makes perfect sense um, that it would show up in the Mandalorian, just where it has so much connection to the Mandalorian idea. And as you just pointed out, hey, we've got uh, Baby Yoda, who is going to be trained as a Mandalorian now. So, hey, a new Mandalorian Force user. Baby Yoda's probably going to end up getting uh, the Darksaber at some point. Well, the neat thing about the Darksaber is its history and connection to Mandalorians goes even further beyond just this first Mandalorian Jedi who created it, in that uh, over time, and once again, I'm pretty sure what I'm talking about is non-canonical, but it might have appeared in some of the animated shows that I'm not familiar with. <laughs> but it uh, ended up making its way back to the clans of Mandalorians and was kind of used as a sign of leadership within the Mandalorians in that yeah. the leaders of the Mandalorians would also wield the Darksaber, which is super cool and unique because traditionally you needed to be a Force user to correctly wield a lightsaber. But because of the way the first Mandalorian Jedi created this Darksaber, he made it so that it could be wielded by people who aren't uh, capable of using the Force themselves, which is why it's this traditional weapon used by Mandalorians. Yeah, but I believe... Uh... Is that it was created by this Mandalorian Force user, and then when that person died, the Jedi secured the Darksaber and put it into their vault, and sometime later the Mandalorians staged a siege to reclaim that and use it as a symbol of leadership for whoever presides over all of the Mandalorian tribes and clans. And I also believe it did show up in uh, the Clone Wars too briefly because uh, there was a whole thing with uh, like a Mandalorian clan in that one as well. So thoughts about the future? Is that is that where we're at now? Pretty much. Now uh, before we go into the speculation uh, of who that person now on Tatooine was uh, there has been uh, a confirmation, which is a pretty big one, about the next season. Uh, apparently, Rosario Dawson is going to be playing Ashoka Tano, uh, which is yep. uh, one of the main characters that shows up in uh, Star Wars Clone Wars and Rebels. The yeah, Padawan the... of Anakin. Yeah, Padawan of Anakin, who stays on the light side after Anakin turns to the dark side. Yeah. Interesting. So, so she's that's confirmed. one... She's been confirmed, and there's a lot of kind of theories out there about how she's going to fit into the story. Uh, some people have suggested that she is going to be trying to track down the Darksaber uh, and 
kind of recollect it for Jedi, which is an interesting choice. I'm not sure, other than the confirmation of a, a Shakatano, uh, how much reason there is to believe that, but that is one thing uh, that a lot of people believe that's her reason for existing in this story, is her trying to track down the Darksaber. Yeah, that could make sense, and it also leads me to believe that maybe at some point she'll realize, hey, there's this baby Yoda being trained by a Mandalorian. Maybe baby Yoda at some point might uh, become the rightful owner of this uh, Darksaber. Yeah, and she well, should she know what the just... race is. She also might just appear in the kind of last couple episodes, like the last episode or two, depending on how they space it out. And she might just be kind of who the Mandalorian returns the child to. Instead of returning it to Yoda's race of people, he returns it to the Force users and the Jedi. Yeah, in the form of all we know, Yoda's race might have died out. And as you pointed out, this baby Yoda might be a clone of Yoda. Yeah. And, and another interesting so, thing to consider, too, is... Uh, this is more in regards to the fact that uh, with the uh, Rise of Skywalker movie, we know that uh, uh, Ashka is uh, dead because she can't be a Force ghost otherwise. Yes. So she does die by the time of the sequels. Yeah. Mm. So this might be showing what happens in that situation specifically. Okay. But might even have some sort of scenario where she comes to collect the baby and dies while trying to take the child. And that leaves room for a season three where the Mandalorian still can't part ways with the child and is still hanging out with him for the rest of time. Uh, and uh, in regards to the person on Tatooine, uh, there's been a rumor going around on who this cloaked figure is, which is pretty interesting. I'm not sure if it's correct. Yeah, exactly. Boba Fett, because last time we see Boba Fett in this universe, he's in the Sarlacc pit. And that's kind of the last we see. But yeah, in Legends, we did, we did get confirmation that he survived, though. Yeah, because in Legends, well, he gets out, and there's never been really anything since the new canonization since Disney picked it up that has gone through anything about it since. The fun thing about that is, if you actually watch that scene at the end, the sound of his footsteps as he walks towards Shan's body is very, like, pretty much identical to the sound you hear whenever Boba Fett walks in the original trilogy. So it kind of makes sense that it's Boba Fett, given that we already have that link. In addition kind of Shan already reveals that she knows that there's a bounty out on her and people are hunting for her. What makes more sense than fucking Boba Fett potentially hunting down Shan to try and make up enough money to get off this fucking backwater planet of Tatooine? That makes sense. And also the fact that Boba Fett has an undying hatred of Jedi's now, thanks to uh, Mace Windu killing his father. So, uh, if Baby Yoda is supposed to become like some Mandalorian Jedi in the future. He could be another force out there to hunt down and kill Baby Yoda. Yeah, we have a potential ally for future seasons in Ashoka Tano. We have a potential enemy in the form of Boba Fett. Now, neither one of with Boba so, Fett. That's a bit either way though, because Boba Fett uh, is actually only really a villain in the Skywalker storyline that happens in the movies because. In Legends in the past, he's actually a very powerful ally and even trains uh, oh, yeah. Han Solo's daughter. Well, yeah, the whole point is... Jedi. The whole point is he's just a bounty hunter and he goes to whatever side kind of... Pays him. <laughs> fits him at that point in time. So yeah. it's not that he is good or evil, it's he's on the side that's going to pay him. 
and that would make sense for him being a villain because we already know there's a pretty big fucking bounty out on the child and the Mandalorian right now, so it would make sense that he would be hunting them, yeah. given that so, Gideon definitely hasn't given up on catching them. Nope. For all we know, he could be the villain of Season 2, but then come around to an ally of Season 3. Potentially. Yes. Like, if, uh, hey, Baby Yoda might be a Force user, but is not going to become a Jedi, Baby Yoda's going to become a Mandalorian. He'd so have no real reason if if he no longer has to fulfill the bounty, he'd have no real reason to go after Baby Yoda anymore. Yeah. Another fun theory, uh, potential for the future, uh, is the idea that Gideon wants to turn himself into a Force user. Uh, uh, that's one I've at least read online, in that we have a couple of reasons for believing this. The fact that he's wielding the Darksaber, which he clearly stole from some group, presumably some sort of Mandalorian clan, when... He raided them and stole the Darksaber back from them. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that he's wielding a lightsaber that can be wielded by nine Force users means maybe he wants to wield an actual lightsaber, and this is as close as he can get for right now. The fact that he's obsessed with trying to track down this, in theory, clone baby that has been uh, genetically bred and is a Force user, he might be trying to do some weird genetic experiment where he gets force powers from the baby through some mechanism that won't be explained and definitely doesn't have a name like midichlorians. <laughs> one transfusion. Yeah, so... Just want to inject Mandalorians... Uh, I almost said want to inject Mandalorians into his blood. <laughs> so, the theory I read online essentially goes that Gideon decides, or has built up this goal in his mind of wanting to become a force user so that he can rule now that fucking... Uh, Palpatine is dead, at least in his idea. So he decides to clone a baby of a, one of the most powerful Force users to try and recreate the genetics to give himself Force powers. He tracks down a lightsaber that he can wield until he gets proper Force powers in the form of the Darksaber. And then while he's raiding and stealing the Darksabers from the Mandalorians is when the raiders attack his cloning facility and steal the child from him, so he doesn't have the two pieces at the same time. And so now he has to spend his time trying to track down the child uh, through the client in the Season 1. Yeah. And so Season 2 is going to be all about him trying to fulfill his plan of getting the baby so that he can perform the experiments to make himself into a fourth Caesar. I can see that. A similar theory I've also... I don't think I actually have seen this anywhere... But it's my own headcanon, which is given that this takes place between the original trilogy and the sequels, uh, is that Baby Yoda was actually being tracked down as a potential host for Palpatine. Because we know that Palpatine uh, from the sequels has been like forcing himself into different Force users so that the Sith can live on in him and he can make some other Force user the new host of the Sith. And so mm -hmm. the theory I've read is that they cloned Baby Yoda to be a very powerful Force user, and then they're just going to put the Sith into him so that there's still an embodiment of the Sith somewhere in the universe. Yeah. And, and that's if it doesn't work, then potentially just use it as some sort of uh, villain like uh, Snoke. Yeah, and that's what happens between him realizing that he has a child in the form of... or a grandchild who's a Force user in the form of Rey. He doesn't know about Rey yet because Rey hasn't been born at this point in time 
Right. So he doesn't have a potential host for the Sith. So he tries to clone a host for the Sith. And that's how we get the child. So those are my theories for what's coming. I don't know how well that's going to play into the story. So I guess in season two, we're maybe going to get the slightest hint of a Palpatine reveal in that he's the one who's forcing Gideon to hunt down the child. But I don't think we'll actually get any thing greater than that before yeah. or if, during season two. More than two seasons, then I certainly hope we don't get any solid evidence as to who the main villain is going to be. Personally, I would I like just the idea of, continue to get clues. I like the idea of season two ending the exact same way that uh, episode eight ended, in that, like, after the credits roll, you just hear fucking Palpatine's laugh again, and you're like, God fucking damn it, Palpatine, just... Just be dead! I mean, I would personally prefer Palpatine to not be involved with the villain of pretty much everything Star Wars. I like just Moff Gideon being the person who sees a vacuum and he's trying to gain power in it. I I definitely think that theory's better. I Knowing the way that Star Wars likes to handle things, I wouldn't be surprised if they try and squeeze in fucking... Uh, Palpatine into the story somehow. Like, uh, where it's a Mandalorian story, having Boba Fett show up, I can understand. Don't make him a big part, obviously. And uh, Ahsoka Toa being whatever she's doing in the universe. I don't want her to be something really big in the story, but having her, you know, do something minor in it that kind of, like, hints the things I'd be fine with. I hate the idea... Sorry, I hate the idea of Ahsoka Tano showing up at the beginning of Season 2 and her becoming, like, a new buddy who travels along with the Mandalorian and the child, that is, I think that would have a negative impact on the show and it would kind of change what the show's all about and just try and make it into a sequel to Rebels. But if they instead just had her show up as the character who's trying to collect the child uh, to bring him back to the Jedi, and that's who the Mandalorian realizes he's supposed to turn her into, I think that makes a lot more sense. Sorry about that. We seem to have... uh hit a bit of a technical difficulty with our recording there. So we... uh, let's be honest, I'm the one doing the recording, it was my fault. Let's yeah, all just all, acknowledge all right. We're all that it was... Shoulder, a bit of the blame. It was somehow Matt's fault, we all acknowledge we're moving on. We can all shoulder a bit of the blame. Anyway, we've uh, lost a little bit of our flow, but we were just moving into a bit of a wrap-up. Anyway, so, uh, Peter, you had something that you were wrapping up with? Oh yeah, so I think it's uh, cool if we start building a bit of a tradition out of what we started last episode, where we're going to do kind of recommendations of stuff not related to the topic we were talking about, or not directly related to the topic we're talking about. Uh, And where we talked a fair bit about Taika Waititi, I just wanted to recommend his recent film, Jojo Rabbit. It's uh, a semi-comedy film set in uh, Nazi Germany, and it's the story of a young boy's kind of coming-of-age tale. So it's all about this boy kind of dealing with, like, growing up as a Nazi, but also realizing Nazis aren't great people. Uh, and he has a imaginary best friend in the form of Hitler. Uh, and it's very dark story, but, like, very comedically played, so it kind of balances itself out really well and ends up being a really enjoyable film to watch. And yeah, it was actually a quote, I believe. Uh, I don't know if it's accurate, but... Quantico uh, Wikidi was actually in an interview, and the person asked him what research he did on Hitler to like get the part right. And I think he actually just, just laughed at them and was like, "Why would I do research on Hitler to display him correctly? Like, just kind of downplaying the fact of it's Hitler. Who cares?" Yeah, uh, I believe he even had another interview 
where he someone asked him about whether it's all right to make jokes about this kind of subject matter. And he essentially said, like, this is the reason that comedy exists is so that we can talk about dark subject matter because of the fact that, like, these are stories that need to be told so that we know what to look for in the future. And it's just if we don't tell the stories, we never learn from them. And comedy is a good vessel to tell stories that are hard to hear. And if you're looking for Taika Waititi and Dark, definitely What We Do in the Shadows is another good one. It's so good. It's uh, a mockumentary about vampires uh, in London. No, not London. New Australia. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's Australia. Australia. New Fuck, one of them. A uh, land down uh, under. Even a scene, a, a scene with fucking werewolves in the streets. Oh, it's fucking <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I think the, the vampires are like making fun of them and they just start howling at each other and then there's a fight and there's one guy that's like, I'm a, I'm a vampire hunter. <laughs> oh, so good. Uh, Matt, did you have any recommendations? Uh, yeah, harken back to something Keith said near the beginning uh, about uh, Seven Samurai. That reminded me of a movie I watched a while back called The Last Samurai, which I really enjoyed. Tom Cruise movie. He plays an uh, American kind of uh, general of the army. Somehow finds his way into a Japanese settlement and... He's originally taken prisoner by these uh, people, but ends up gaining a bit of their respect and uh, kind of learning about their traditions and samurai. And it's more traditional view on samurai and not, I guess, the glorified image that we get a lot now. Recently, have you watched The Last Samurai, Matt? Not terribly recently. Okay, because I remember watching it a long time ago, I think when it first came out and enjoying it. And thinking about it recently, I'm wondering if it held up at all. So I was kind of hoping you can answer that for me, but I guess you can't. Sadly not. But I mean, I do, I do remember it didn't really have any, I guess, special effects. So there's nothing really to say that it wouldn't hold up. But uh, okay. I mean, Avatar and Dances with Wolves holds up, I guess. It's pretty much the same movie. <laughs> I'll take your word for that. And Keith, recommendation for me? Yep, so... uh I mentioned it already in this, uh, but Kurosawa definitely did a lot of influence uh, for George Lucas. He's a big fan of it. So any Kurosawa film that you can see, I definitely recommend. Uh, Seven Samurai, which is very much like uh, the episode uh, of, what well, was the name of it? Sanctuary. Uh, very much I uh, did recommend uh, uh, Hidden Fortress, which uh, was the inspiration for the first Star Wars movie. Another good one. My personal favorite, Kage Musha which is actually about uh, a shogun that ends up dying, or a daimyo, I should say, uh, lord, dies, and they find a thief that looks just like him, but because they're in such a political and, like, war state that if the leader dies, they'll lose their territory to the people around them, that they put this thief in his place to pretend it's him. It's a really good movie. Yeah, I love fucking Kurosawa films. My personal favorite is Gotta Be Rashomon. It's this idea of this one story being told over and over from different characters' perspectives. Uh, and you kind of get this idea of, like, a subjective narrator who's telling you the story that paints them in the best light. So it's this really cool idea of a movie where you just get to see the same story over and over, but told from different people's perspectives. Like Vantage Point. Or, oh my god, there was another one that came out recently that was... I like Vantage Point. There's another one that came out, like, probably early 2000s that was, uh, like, the tale of Red Riding Hood, except told using the same narrative device oh yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about but i cannot remember for life me what that uh, movie was called. probably because it was probably terrible but uh i think it was like over the no uh, i can't remember 
of whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's probably not worth your time. But anyway, do you guys have any last thoughts? Uh, well, quick question for the audience. Uh, yeah. What do you guys think was the was your favorite episode of The Mandalorian? We kind of discussed which episodes we liked and disliked. Do you have a different opinion? Do you think perhaps The Gunslinger was your favorite episode? Uh, hit us up. Let us know what you think. And how you wrong you were if it was The Gunslinger. in the prison break. <laughs> uh, alternatively, you can also tell us if you have an idea of who it might be that was uh, at the end of The Gunslinger going up to Fennec's body. If you have an idea that's not one of the ones we listed. Yeah, or if you just have your own theories for Season 2, or just want to tell us why our theories were wrong. Yeah, we'd love to hear your crackpot theories and conspiracies. I would literally... I would love to hear conspiracy theories from everyone in the audience. (laughs) Or tell us how wrong you are for liking the gunslinger. Yeah. But, uh, as always, thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us on uh, all major podcast streaming platforms, as long as... or along with YouTube. And you can also reach out to us on Instagram or by emailing at us at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. And I just want to mention really quick about the Instagram page. No one has currently guessed today's episode based on the image there. But if someone does manage to guess it before it goes up, which would be today, May the 4th, then we will definitely give you a call out once we upload the episode. Yeah, yeah so... you'll uh, get mentioned on the post on Instagram and we'll probably also call you out at the beginning of the next podcast. So, yeah, if you have any questions about things or have any idea of what our podcast may be about in the future, then uh, be sure to reach out to us and let us know. And uh, we'll be back in another two weeks where we're going to talk about... uh, What are we going to talk about? Dinosaurs and robots and which one's the worst idea to build a theme park around. I do kind of like dinosaurs. You gotta ask Bill, though. He's supposed to be supervising him, but he didn't do a great job last time. Good point. We should probably go with the robots.